0: Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet partners with businesses, organisations, and unions and social democratic parties across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies, and empower people to organise for change. And in 2020, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope, and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. On this week, this episode is our Northern Territory election preview. We're going to be joined by the former party secretary uh, for Territory Labour and a guy that's still working on the campaign, but from a consultancy perspective. So we're getting some insider uh, labour ball here. Uh, Kent Rowe is going to join us on today's podcast to just help us break down uh, all of the issues that are shaping the election in the Northern Territory, which is going to be held uh, not this Saturday, uh, but next Saturday, which off the top of my head, I should have had that written down beforehand, uh, is Saturday, the uh, 22nd of August. So uh, I, I literally think that this is the only podcast, Labour podcast, that will be doing a preview of the Northern Territory election. So if you want to get all the inside news, um, this is the episode to listen to. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you're an Apple Podcasts uh, user, please leave us a rating and a review. And for all of the updates about the podcast, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Friday afternoon in lockdown Melbourne and joining us on the line from the Free Territories is the former Labor Party Secretary for Territory Labor and now a fellow campaign consultant who's, campaign, who's uh, consulting for Campaign Edge Sprout, which is we're actually working on a lot of the, the advertising campaign for Territory Labor in the upcoming uh, territory elections. Kent Rowe, welcome to Socially Democratic.
1: Hello, Stephen. i going to be with you.
0: Um, Victorian lockdown is giving me uh, a bit of cabin fever at the moment and social media is providing me with constant reminders of places that I have been this time of the year in uh, over the past five to ten years and I was reminded ago that um, four years ago I probably would have been sitting on the porch uh, in a sort of late afternoon in Coconut Grove sipping a beer with my laptop while there was a um, sort of evening phone bank going on and um, F-15s and F-18s screaming over my head as they take off from Darwin Airport for that. Is it Was Operation Pitch Black?
1: Pitch Black, yeah. It's a regular one that sort of happens every every couple of years um, and it uh, yeah, tears up the sky.
0: And uh, thinking about that and thinking, I remember thinking at the time when I was working on that campaign going, you know, life's pretty good. I'm a pretty lucky bloke. The Labor Party's been good to me over the years and that was one of the uh, one of the moments that I always
1: yeah. treasure. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to keep an eye on time for this one because I'm due at the Charlotte Boat Club for a pint uh, pretty soon after this, so uh, yeah, I'll have to give an eye.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for reminding me of uh, the, the things that you can do,
1: the things that we can't do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, then I'll be going out to dinner with the family. It'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Anyway. Um,
0: but look, one thing I did one, did, one thing I did think about actually, And look, to, to, on today's podcast, we're going to, you know, we're going to break down the the campaign, get your insights into where Labor has been since the 2016 campaign, uh, taking us all the way up to election day next Saturday. But before we do do that, I actually, it's worth acknowledging that the, a lot of my friends from down South who had worked on previous territory campaigns had said to me, Stephen, if there's anything that you do before you die in a campaign space, you need to go campaign on a Northern Territory election campaign. It is a one and one and a kind experience, and I came up there for uh, two months, I think it was, and I yeah, was I wasn't yeah, disappointed. Yeah, yeah. I was not disappointed in any way, shape, or form. It is one of the most formative campaign experiences uh, in my in my life, um, and it was certainly. Great working with you as the, the party secretary. And without blowing too much wind up your ass, um, you know, you were the territory campaign director that oversaw Labor's, Labor being returned to office in a landslide election victory in, in August 2016. And it was the, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was the CLP suffered the worst defeat of a sitting government in, in territory history that, in, the, in that landslide election that, that brought Michael Gunner and his team into government.
1: Yeah, no, um, it was uh, a very heavily uh, heavy uh, defeat for the Tories across the board, uh, not many times in your life. year, were down to two. We'd, we'd knocked the opposition down from 2001 to 2005. We knocked them down to uh, four after that election and assumed that was probably the best we are ever going to do. Um, but, uh, uh, but we yeah, we pulled off a pretty miraculous victory, um, not necessarily in terms of uh, there was a lot of things going our way, but... Um, um we really had sharpened the saw in terms of what we were saying um, and how we were going to deliver those messages um, based off the back of uh, the hard work um, of uh, a lot of people around the place in a real investment and uh, not just sort of financially, but sort of emotionally into direct voter contact, which meant that, you know, there was probably a handful of seats that uh, if we weren't putting the work in, they probably wouldn't have got over the line. But we, we pushed the whole... A range of seats over the line that um, might have been tough otherwise. So there's people like Tony Brennan and uh, Tony Stevens that's sitting out in Brennan right now that um, um, was probably in a, in a seat that we wouldn't have thought we'd picked up in 2016. But uh, when being being been pre-selected in October 2015 and Christmas 2016, he'd knocked on 1,500 doors, which is roughly a third of the electorate. So um, it, is, uh, it is a place where... Um, uh dbc matters everywhere um but this is a place where um you the numbers of people you talk to are significant parts of your electorate you don't just have to target hard parts you can go after all of it so uh it's uh um uh, there was a lot of people involved and a lot of people did really great work and it was the uh, real understanding that um you know people people vote in elections and people vote for how they feel and whether they think that they're looking after you're going to be able to look after them in parliament and um and We put a whole lot of people out there, and um, that were truly representative of the people they were going to look after, and um, and and we allowed them to meet them and um, develop relationships with them, and and that was that that was the basis of where we. But uh, we also picked up our first seat ever in Alice Springs in Brightling with Dale Wakefield, and we won Catherine for the first time. So these are sort of um, uh, urban areas of uh, of the remote territory that we we've. Often lost in really really heavy circumstances before, and we, uh, for the first time, um, uh, showed ourselves and our values and how they align with the people of those places. The
0: diversity of campaigning in the Northern Territory is remarkable um, because you have the urban centres in in Darwin itself, um, and the sort of satellite city Palmerston, which um, kind of has a different feel about it, but is only just down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, you know, places like Catherine and Darwin you mentioned, but then also there's these, you know, huge electorates. So some of these electorates are quite small and have like, you know, four, 5,000 electors crammed into, you know, three or four kilometres. And then you have, you know, electorates that I can't even, I can't even, my brain can't even consider how big these electorates are. Um, and we'll talk, yeah. we'll talk a bit about how do we overcome those challenges later, but just sort of give us a bit of a flavour of what it is like to campaign in the Territory.
1: Sure. So uh, I think one of the big challenges that's very different to most other places of are campaigning in the, campaign the territory is our the dynamicness of our size. Um, um, and we're a little bit like the, the TARDIS in a way. We're a lot bigger on the inside than we are on the outside. So you might look at us and say there's only 100,000 people, but um, in that 100,000 people, there's probably 20-odd distinct voting universes and, you know, demographics of people when you have to take that into consideration. You've also got to understand... Um, the, the scale of uh, economics in a way of of a campaign, whereas in um, some of those big places, you'll have uh, a lot of a lot of really heavy resource poured in, and you might be involved in part of the campaign, but not part of different parts of it. Um, or there's a lot of other people to pick up the slack. Whereas up here, um, the meta of politics and a uh, and the um, and the micro of politics um, really sort of uh, live side by side, and um, and you know you can be, and it's quite often I'll be sitting in a in a meeting where we're talking about strategy and what our you know media messaging is one day, and then and then an hour and a half later I'm um, out on the doors and sort of um, you know talking to somebody about um, you know, teacher cuts or or public service cuts, and um, and so there's a real the real need to be um, good at every part of your game up here. Uh, and if you campaign up here, um, you need to you need to have uh, the ability to. Uh, switch up pretty quickly on on how you're performing and how you're doing and, um, and how you're engaging. Um, the other really good thing about the size of our trips too is um, it doesn't really matter whether, um, you know, w- what part of the party you've come from and if you, come, if you do get a chance to come up here and spend a couple of weeks with us during the campaign sometime, you'll notice that there's, uh, when the campaign itself is actually on, it's a real melting pot. So you know it doesn't matter what group you are from or um um you know or faction or anything like that. We sort of all end up at the same pubs having a few beers and it's a, you really get back to the fact that we're all we all wear red shirts and we all really want to get Labor governments elected then it's uh um there's a real camaraderie that you get to develop because you might not see you might be in one seat and somebody else in the other seat and you might meet up at the end of the day or the end of the week and there's a a, a real sort of lifting of the spirits. Um which I don't until I've campaigned a few other places and um, you sort of get locked in your own little electric world uh, and that's where you stay, whereas here you you get to feel like you're part of the bigger, bigger team that's going on all the time and um, and that's something we really encourage because at the end of the day, um, as much as effective as door knocking is, um, you know, putting in 30-odd hours in 30-degree uh, heat when the humidity's starting to pick up, uh, you know, <laughs> having, a, having some comrades to sort of pump up your energies isn't necessarily a bad thing, so... Um, uh, in terms of what does our what does it look like um, uh, for the territory election? You know, we've got 25 seats up here um, for the people that um, uh, that uh, are playing along at home. That means uh, we've got single member based electorate, so um, we've got 25 races that are happening. You know, simultaneously, um, we've got uh, the Darwin urban area, which I think at the moment has got 13 seats in it, or maybe 12 and a bit. Um, uh, which is roughly what we call Solomon, if you're thinking about it in the federal context, um, and that covers Darwin and Palmerston, and, um, uh, and has some little rural and ele- Darwin rural elements to it. Um, outside of that, you've got um, uh, the Lichfieldshire Shire and the rural area, which is sort of the most northern part, um, and this would be the Lingiari zone. So you'd have uh, there's three seats in the rural area, and then you've got uh, what we call our um, remote seats. So you've got like Arnhem, Arafura uh, which is in the northeast uh, corner of the Northern Territory. Um, you've got Catherine, which is uh, sort of our inland stock hub, um, which is uh, about three hours south of Darwin. Um, and then another um, eight hours south of Catherine, you've got um, the centre of the seat of Barclay, which is Tennant Creek. Uh, and then another five hours south of that, you've got Alice Springs, which has another three seats in there. And then then basically, the uh, if you look at the map of the Territory, um, Apart from the sort of the top bit you cut off, um, if you have a look at the um, the territory and sort of split it down the line of the Stuart Highway, you've got um, Barclay on one side and uh, the former seat of Stuart or the seat of Wadja on the other, um, and um, uh, both of those seats basically take up you know a couple of hours of Europe doing a ringganga visit. So um, you know a candidate or a member of service, those things, you know, you're putting in forty, fifty thousand kilometres just to um, just to uh, uh, um, go meet all the people we need to go meet.
0: It um the distance is incredible and uh you know if you're a field organizer and you're driving to a uh, a door knock and you're halfway there and you've realized you left all the walk packs back in the campaign office and you've got to turn around and go back and get them. If you are driving from Tenet Creek to Alice Springs, which is an eight-hour drive or whatever, and you realize that you're halfway there and you've left the door knocking packs back in the office, that's a little bit of a different challenge. Do I go back and get them? Yeah. yeah no. Do I just stay out in the desert now until the campaign's <laughs> over? Because I don't want to admit that I've done this. Like you know, this, this, These are decisions you need to make when you're out there, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, um. Uh, now, well, we've got pretty decent mobile phone coverage nowadays, so uh, we can use the Cantrain Central app online now. So, um, and we've uh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so some of these problems are alleviated in a certain sense. Uh, and uh, but uh, yeah, no, it, it, there's some really you know, strange logistical challenges. So uh, we have a ballot draw is on the Thursday. so that was Thursday last week, and by Monday the remote access polling um, has started. So you know people are driving around the territory you know collecting votes so we've been we've actually been voting up here since Monday um in uh, in remote and rural areas so you know if you don't have those you know ballot orders finalized then you don't have those cards printed and if they don't make the right people by a certain time on Sunday afternoon then they miss the first 3 hour drive south which is followed by you know another 3 days of driving following this remote polling schedule out. um you know it's a it's a difficult thing
0: Where did Territory Alliance spring from in terms of this
1: division within uh, the Conservatives? Sorry, you got me. I got sidetracked by, (laughs) emotionally sidetracked by that whole thing. (laughs) It took a little bit of energy out of the tanks. Um, Now, look, uh, uh, where Territory Alliance sprang from, so Terry Mills about four weeks before the last election decided he was going to put his hat in and and run for parliament. Um, uh, Terry's, you know, been a a player for a long time in parliament. I was... um, I think I was uh, 15 years old when he was first elected. And if anyone's seen his podcast, I'm no longer anywhere near 15 years old. <laughs> um, Terry uh, had been around for a while, uh, lost his leadership, uh, left the parliament for um, uh, to take up a really, really highly paid consulting position in, in Indonesia, um, and then uh, sent a tweet that was mean to Adil Giles. So lost his position in Indonesia and came back and decided to contest. Um, uh, and when the new parliament was formed and there was two CLP members, there was Robin Lamley, who was a former CLP treasurer, elected, um, obviously Terry Mills. Um, uh, there, was, there was always some sort of thought that at least Terry and Robin, who were seen as being victims together, um, would would find a way to form together. Um, uh, that, that has taken some, lots of evolutions. There was, there was talk about they were going to form the North Australia Conservatives Party um, there was talk that they were going to bring the Nationals up to the NT um, and for um, uh, people listening that probably aren't as in tune with Northern Territory political history is a bit of history repeating itself where former CLP Chief Minister Ian Tuxworth in the 80s, um, who had lost his, lost his way inside his party, tried to bring up the Nationals um, and so the Nationals and CLP actually had three corner races in the 80s and um, um, were basically wiped out except for uh, taxi holding his own seat. So uh, that was the last time they tried that. So the Nationals, um, they came out and said, announced they were going to form the Nationals Northern Territory Branch. Um, the Nationals, I think, just from memory, and I might be foggy on this, but so the Nationals came out within a couple of days and said, uh, no, you're not. Um, so they went, <laughs> they went back to the drawing board. Uh, Terry decided he was going to do his Terry's Alliance Party. Um, uh, and they have... Um, uh, come out, and they've got themselves together, and they're they're running as a third force now. Um, they've picked up um, uh, some former Labor people as well, um, and they're trying to present themselves as a sort of third way alternative. But uh, the stark reality about Territory Alliance is they're they're a they're a, uh, they're a conservative. They're a conservative choice, not necessarily a progressive progressive alternative. Um, you know, Terry Mills um, and his party, you know, uh, uh, were voters against gay marriage. They voted against ru um, four eight six. They um, uh, a lot of really aggressive social practices are sort of hidden just under the surface of what they do. So um, they are, uh, uh, yeah, they're definitely new um, in terms of a uh, uh, branding, but um, they are probably. Uh, not so new in terms of the policies they've come up with and the um, and the ideas they want to take forward.
0: We'll come back to them later when uh, we have a look at some of the seats and where they may pose a bit of a threat for us. But I want to turn our attention now to uh, Michael Gunner and his leadership yep. over the past four years. Um, and I feel like we need to kind of draw a line in the sand and de- to sort of reflect on his leadership pre-COVID and then since um, COVID. Um Going into sort of pre February, March this year, how would you have described uh, Labor's standing within the electorate heading into an election year?
1: I think um, yeah, it would be uh, naive of me to say that we're anything other than a, than a bit of a tough spot we were. Um, I think we, we suffered greatly from the fact that um, there were 18 Labor members of the parliament two opposition, formal opposition members uh, and um, and a handful of other people sort of scattered around the place, which meant that you didn't really have a concerted opposition force united against you. Um, and I sort of equate that to being sort of we were, we were naked on a stage with every five light pointed on us and people sort of pointing out every nook and cranny and crevice. Um, so I think, I think there was um, definitely some issues that... Um, Um, that were were created around that. So, um, and everything was people only looking at one side of politics for three and a half years. Um, I think, too, the other thing that sort of framed up um, a lot of the negative debate up here is some people might remember there was an article that came out on Four Corners about six weeks before the last Territory election that was around youth justice and the treatment of prisoners in um, in, um, correction centres up in the Northern Territory. Um, and that came out with commission, um, and the findings of those commissions and and the response from the community and um, uh, people were that um, the, the reality of the situation of how to deal with youth crime hadn't actually been addressed, and that the, and the balance had gone too far the other way, and so that framed that's helped frame a quite a negative perception around youth crime and and the actions towards that. So um, yeah, probably similar to. Um, what Dan Andrews faced in the lead-up to the last uh, Victorian election with the, uh, you know, Axis gangs and things like that. Sort of um, there's a, a lot of high feeling incentives towards it. So there was there was some feeling that there wasn't the right decisions made in that regard. Uh, and then the other big one was, you know, how well our financial position has been. So uh, the Northern Territory is a place that relies on uh, federal funding a lot for its existence. Um there's an old saying um, that we like to talk about at pubs, which is uh, horizontal fiscal equalisation is the glue that binds the, binds the nation together, um, and um, <laughs> uh, and we just need a little bit more glue. But um, uh, when you have a look at the Northern Territory over the last sort of 10 years, there's been something like 20,000 uh, federal public servants that have been moved out. So that's not just them, their wages and, and the people that moved out, and that includes defence people as well. Um, that include, you know, that. That also then affects the amount of GST that we get funded that goes along with that. Um, so there's been some really dramatic shifts in um, the revenue base of the Northern Territory, um, and and when you have significant revenue based um, shifting plus the economy hasn't been quite as strong as it needed to be, uh, means that we've been really in a spot where um, we've been vulnerable to um, the traditional you know labor debt sort of attack from the, from the conservatives. So um, in a in a way, there was a lot of things that were forming up to be um, a really conservative dream on what we could they could attack the government on, um, and um, but there were still opportunities for the government to to talk about what they'd done. So, you know, when they talk about. Um, debt. We talked about what they cut. You know, they cut over 600 teachers or support staff out of our schools. And when you're in a small place, 600 teachers a lot. Um, you know, they promised not to sack public services, and within within uh, a month of getting in, they they'd done a hiring freeze, and that includes people on temporary contracts that then just won't get you renewed. So they are effectively been uh And there was a whole raft of sort of deep cuts that they were doing across the board. They promised to recruit 120 teachers in their four years. They, I think, only got up to 60 or something. There was there's all these things where they they stopped investing in the community. And uh, one of the big problems that we had when we go in was we had a community that had been cut back to bear, which then sold our economy. And which also meant that people weren't getting the services that they needed to get for the place to function properly. So, we, we had to spend a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of resource getting things back up to speed and, and making sure they work and, um, you know, there's some really great results that we've seen across the places coming out. So, for instance, um, uh, there was some really good Napland results that we'd had for a while where um, drag our rates up quite significantly. I don't have the figures in front of me unfortunately because um, uh, I don't think I'll be talking nap land today but uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> but um, we've actually actually seen a lot of fruits of our labour uh, and one of the other really big things that we're proud of um, which is a great story for the bush. So in the bush um, over the last term of government I think there have been 30 houses built in um, in the Giles term. I could be could be slightly off on that figure, um, um, but we have built or seriously renovated over 2,000 homes in the bush in the last four years. So really significant big bits of policy that aren't just pie-in-the-sky stuff. There's, there's, there's people that were living in um, conditions that you wouldn't expect in Australia um, now having extra rooms built on their houses or complete brand-new houses, um, and it's all been done through local decision-making. So uh, if you go for a drive through some of these communities, there's not just sort of these block houses that are built, you know, with horrible grey colours, you know, the brain painted bright blue and pink and whatever people want and all that other stuff. So it's a um, it's just a really it's one of those things that when you you know you get in politics and you want to move the needle on different things and you want to know feel like you've made a difference. When you when you can say at the end of a term you've built or renovated over two thousand homes in the bush, you know that you've actually helped a lot of people out and we've got another eight years of the program to go. So
0: and then in uh, February March, we entered into this incredibly uh, unique circumstance, upon which a global pandemic has com- has started to spread across the, con- the country. Uh, and a lot of eyes actually did look to the territory um, and what kind of impact it would have, particularly in the the, the rural and uh, regional communities. Um, and Gunnar was really—I mean, I, I just felt f- from from a, an observer from way down south Gunnar's leadership just came to the fore. I just thought that he became incredible, like incredible not became incredibly strong but we saw the strength of his leadership and the clarity that he gave and also having a good understanding of what territorians um, want to hear from their leader just give us your thoughts on um this change since uh since covids came on the scene
1: yeah so um, a lot of people talk about you know how michael's leadership has changed and I kind of agree with you it's not that not that his leadership has changed it's just has been viewed um, or it's had an opportunity reviewed and it's in entirety. Um, thing that you know, Michael's actually got a really beautiful territory story. He was, um, and I'm going to get a bit of this wrong somehow, but I think he was born in born in Alice. He was raised in Tennant Creek, and and then you know spent the rest of his life in Darwin. So he's a real, he's, he's a truly territory boy. Um, uh, came up through Housing Commission and all that sort of stuff. He wants to be like he's, and he wants to, and He's just had his kid here, and he wants to have his kids here, and uh, and it's. Uh, it's one of the one of the problems with the territories, you get a lot of people that come up that come up for a little while, they sort of um take as much as they can or they, you know, they they skin the sheep as much as they can and, and disappear. Um and so having someone that's, you know, deeply involved with the history of the territory, but also wants to be deeply involved in the future, you know, on a personal level, you know, just gives is um it's something you just don't always get and it's and it's comforting in a lot of ways. He was um, the first uh, yeah,
0: the first territory leader to be born and raised in the
1: territory yeah. as well. Yeah, um, I'm going to, yeah, I think that's, that's actually 100% true uh, and if it's not, I'm just going to run with it. But um, but um, uh, no, I think you're 100% right there, Michael. In fact, i probably had to write that down a few times. Um, uh, he, he he, definitely is. Um, the other thing about Michael is he's very considered uh, and this probably leads into um, the other question I didn't answer probably quite properly, but um, Michael's leadership style was always going to be um, measured and considered. Um, these uh, We obviously had a few inquiries into the last term of government so one was uh one was the pepper inquiry into uh, onshore um uh, hydraulic fracturing um and um you know that was a difficult policy decision and i know probably not everyone listening to this podcast is going to agree with it but um but they they went to they went to the people with a moratorium to have this inquiry um the inquiry was done we had Absolute experts into it. He actually listens to expert advice when it comes to making big decisions like that, and then and then operating off that expert advice. So you know, there's a lot of leaders around the place um, um, that will shoot from the hip and tell you they know everything in the world, um, and that's really easy to look good doing that. But it's a uh, um, but it's not necessarily always the you don't end up in a good policy place afterwards. Whereas Michael um, is a uh, policy purist in a lot of ways and, you know, how do we make good decisions and how do we keep making good decisions going forward and we listen to the right advice. Um, what COVID did was COVID slowed the world down. So rather than people um, grazing on the news and flashing it past either on, you know, social media or, you know, maybe catching something on the radio or the telly for 10 seconds and it's a grab and, you know, it's a sound bite people got to sit there and slow down and watch this is how people are making decisions and the values basis they're doing behind those decisions um, and I think what Michael did really well um, with his communication early on in the crisis was um, communicated the values that he was that he had behind it when he was talking about the decisions that he was making so that it might help people understand what he was trying to protect. How he was trying to protect it and why he would have to make some of the decisions that he made, whereas you know some other leaders um, across the place, um, you know probably even even nationally, I think you know uh, the federal government. I'm I'm not going to be too hyperly critical of their handling of COVID either because I think at the end of the day we are probably one of the best countries in the world, even though um, you know we're still going through a bit of pain um, in some places now. Um, we didn't, you know, as a as a whole, we we did a fairly decent job, especially when that first wave was coming through. And what what Michael was able to do was just explain and show uh, why he was doing those things. And I think people responded that. They responded to his authenticity. Uh, they responded to his considered nature, uh, but they also responded to the fact that he took the action necessary when it was necessary to take it rather than, rather than sort of be frozen in the headlights by this, you know, um, invisible threat coming towards us all. Uh, and the other thing you need to understand about the Northern Territory, there was a really big um, concern with what was going to happen in rural uh, and regional and remote areas. So we've got we've got thirty um, uh, percent of the territory is obviously Indigenous, and um, and we all know that um, uh, those, those guys have um, uh, a significant gap in, in terms of you know lifelong health stats. Um, there are A lot of underlying health conditions out there. A lot, of, a lot of, a lot of, problems where people were vulnerable, and and if we hadn't acted early, and COVID had got out into some of those communities, we would have seen um, we would have had some really, really serious and um, deeply sad headlines coming out of the territory very quickly. So we had to act fast, um, um, and we had to um, protect lives. That was the number one thing we had to do. And thankfully, we hadn't, we didn't get any community spread. And definitely no nice spread in those areas. Um, and the job over, you know, whether it's Labor continuing or any government over the next couple of months is you know, or next, well, however long it's going to take, um, is going to be making sure that those those remote communities are stay protected.
0: How has the community, broadly speaking across the territory, responded to the way that the government has handled uh, coronavirus?
1: Just the just the general um, sort of talk around people. Um, I think most people are proud of the way that our government, in particular, has handled um, handled this crisis um, and how Territorians as a whole have handled the crisis. I think I think um, um, we've all we've all done what we needed to do when we've needed to. So um, there was no whether it's from industry or from um, or from just people on the ground. You know you people understood the threat that this posed. Um, you know, obviously there were some industries that were hurting really early on, you know, hospitality and tourism was shut overnight. Um and the and they understood it. And I think one of the other things people need to understand about the territory, which is a bit different, you probably probably have a mental form of it but don't quite understand. But we operate in a very sort of backwards weather nature to uh mm-hmm. to all you guys down south. Um we operate in a dry season and a wet season. Uh, the dry season is our high tourist season, so um, um, which is your winter. Um, so we were basically, it uh, was obviously one of our larger economic performing times. Um, not sure that's a correct sentence, but, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good economic time for us. Um, we've got V8s and races and armies um, D- D- um, D- D- of D- what we call yeah, you've got the cups. you've been there. Uh, armies of grey nomads coming up in camper vans and, you know, people going out to Kakadu and, you know, they're seeing all the weird and wonderful things of the Northern Territory um, and that was just turned off overnight. So what you have is a lot of, you know, business and operators that have just come through a pretty lean wet season looking to, uh, you know, do a bit of cost recovery and, and put some capital on the bank over a dry season then it's just sort of taken away. So we have a situation where we had a lot of people um, in in a lot of pain straight away so uh, the second part of uh, you know the response was not just the health response but it was the economic response and and the government went out really really early really really fast with um the you know, grants to um adapt so how could they adapt their business and how could you know how could we help people adapt their businesses to survive so for instance um there's a really good burger joint on lucky street that i've probably taken you to once uh, stephen that um that uh, you know, it's a high quality gourmet burgers, and I had a had a license, um, and now you can get a takeaway burger and a takeaway beer to go with it. So um, you know, there's just all that sort of things that we just sort of, how do we how do we best stay ahead of the game? And how do we change? Um, uh, obviously, uh, um, we we're able to open our pubs and clubs and things like that a bit faster, which um, you know I think has a has a twofold effect. One is You know, getting businesses open, people back to work, but and on the second thing, um, you know, it really reinforces that community aspect and and um, that sort of social part of our life. So, you know, I don't mind having a beer and a pint at a pub occasionally, and uh, and it's just a it's a really stark reminder that um, how lucky some of those things are that you just sort of take for granted as normal in your life. Um, You know, um, we've got to be open because we did the right things at the right time.
0: It was a great moment. I think I saw uh, Michael Gunner doing a stand-up press conference where he was imploring everyone to just hold off. Look, I know you want to have a beer. I know that you, you know. Like it was just this genuine honesty that I just thought he, like he was speaking fluent Territorian. <laughs> I don't think any other leader in the country could, you know, get away with. I mean, Daniel Andrews sort of done the whole, oh, I know you want to get on the beers, which became a bit of a meme in itself. But just the way that Gunner was yeah, sort yeah. of just reaching out to people, saying, "Look, I, I get the hardship." <laughs> that you are going through right now i get it But yeah. you just got to work with me on this one for a moment folks just just to hold on all right
1: yeah yeah and and i think uh, i think that authenticity um and um and by by opening yourself up and bearing your soul probably at one of the first couple of um conferences he spoke about how uh, he'd um found he was going to have a baby in april and um and uh, at, uh, he'd had a minor heart attack in, I think, either late January or early February. And uh, and just uh, I think the gravity and framework that that gives you, um, as in, you know, what you're looking after and what you're protecting here. Um, and he was really open and honest about, you know, how that had affected him and what he was worried about, you know, when COVID was coming because, um, uh, you know, people with heart conditions, um, like Michael and myself or, or any other serious underlying condition, you know, this... this this insidious disease had a, uh, was coming for us all, um, and that openness and authenticity, I think, um, a lot of people found uh, themselves able to easily identify with the, the struggles and 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 uh, internal turmoil that he was going through as a as a human being, not just as as a leader. And I think that's what um, you know modern politics is missing a lot of times is um, we we often try and put up such sanitised, versions of different things that we forget how to be real people um and and at the end of the day politics is about people it's about connections it's about it's about um um you know leading people not just managing them and managing things and you know i think that's something we do a whole lot better when we do it right on the progressive side of politics because because we're not just we're not just solving a problem in a textbook where we're making sure that people can actually get on with their lives and do the things and be able to feed their family and and keeping them safe and in, in the day, that's why we do what we do. And
0: if there was ever a time in which, you know, public narrative has such an important role in the, the in leadership and in communication to a, to, to a constituency, it is now like the story of self, the story of us, the story of now, the story of self uh, best articulated by Michael Gunner when he talked about the impact that it had for him uh, and the concern that he, the challenge that faced him was a, a heart condition, uh, you know, uh, a health challenge the story of us that everyone else across the territory would also, and you even said it yourself, like it it resonated with me because I too have, you know, I've got some health issues that I was worried about and then the story of now a present real urgent challenge that is before us that we physically cannot see but we certainly can, we are certainly aware of it and we know what that challenge looks like because we've seen what has happened to people in the United States, to people in Britain, to people in Italy and Spain and parts of Europe. Um, and then, therefore, what is the ask that we put on our community right now? And the ask is I need you to – we all need to work together here um, and we all need to do things like stay indoors or, you know, you know wash your hands and wear masks and all the all stuff that um, – it's, it's – um, it just – as an organiser, it just makes perfect sense. Yeah, There's a question coming here and that is – but that can all be completely stuffed up when the media don't want to report it that way. And I find it interesting – in Victoria that I think journalists are getting very frustrated right now because there is no filter between Daniel Andrews and the constituency because he's doing press conferences every day. I think he's done like 42 in a row now. Um, And he's talking directly to the community. And it's annoying the media because they can't spin it the way they want to spin it. Um, I, I just want to get a sense from you about the NT News, which everyone knows about the NT News for all its incredibly funny headlines, but it is actually a legitimately serious... Uh, paper for the people living in the Northern Territory. How have they? How have they behaved? Covering um, the Gunner response to COVID.
1: Yeah. Um, um, uh, is this going to air before the election? Are they going to hear this before I? Uh... Is it, is it, is it, is it... Uh,
0: this is this will be going up live so it's uh, going up later tonight so by by all means feel free to uh temper your your remarks kent Rowe.
1: no i think, no, not just the nt news up here we've obviously got um a, a lot of a lot of journalists buzzing around but um, i think it's um uh, i think it would be fair to say that um, when the initial response um was happening um the nt news the nt news was and, um, and the media up here was definitely um on board with with this is a big threat and what do, and what do we do to stop and, and deal about it um but so i think um there was a lot of times where um people would want to move on um and and try and do their own agendas so um there was quite a heavy push um, around june july um, um to open our borders a lot faster than than michael was prepared to do and the government was prepared to do and the and the, CHO was prepared to do um and um it was we seen people from lots of different sectors um and it's definitely those from uh, the media as well and uh, and that in fact that crescendoed with the uh, opposition leader Leah finocchiaro coming out in june um you know thinking that she had the wind in her sail saying that if she was chief minister, she would open the borders by um uh july uh, june 22 or july 22 uh, june 22 i think it was and um uh, and it was just a really sort of you know reactionary comment that was was born out of the fact that um, there was a campaign being, or um, well, there was a there was a movement coming editorially from from a you know, a few different newsrooms. It'd be fair to say that the sentiment from from that push wasn't backed up by anywhere anyone in the community. Um, and I did see a poll the other day for Dan Andrews after after watching getting smashed on. Um, Every platform I've seen, for um, you know, whether it be a news site or Twitter, or um, everyone should get off Twitter. By the way, it's really bad for your mental health. But um, yeah, whether it's uh, whether it's one of those things, you know, uh, you know, Dan Andrews was um, um, was uh, just off a of, of the Hun as you know one of the most hated people in the history of the planet. Where. Was, but as soon as a, a poll was done, you know, 140,000 people, you know, jump on and I think it was 60 or 70% said that he was doing a good job or were led to handle the right way. Uh, and it just shows you that that you don't um, – you have to do what you think is right all the time. You can't do what the most pressure is being put on you for because at the end of the day, doing the right thing uh, always holds up. But um, responding to media pressure doesn't necessarily always hold up. So, you know, it's a real point of difference up here where, um, you know, Michael said he'd, you know, close the borders and protect lives and protect jobs and keep you safe. And, uh, and the CLP leader was out saying we'd open borders because there was a bit of a there was a bit of a run on. Um, so I think it's really important um, that you always hold the line and do what you think's right and, and keep working hard and doing those things. And I think, you know, Dan, Dan um, from afar uh, has been working really hard with a really, really complicated place to do the best they can. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, my uh, my comrades in Victoria, I know that you um, all my friends that I've spoken to over the last little while, they just talk about how this stage of lockdown is the, um, a lot harder than the first. Um, and, you know, it's the little things they're missing out. So, so any of my friends listening that I've spoken to you on the wall, oh, yeah, although I will post the occasional photo of a beer, I do actually, uh, do actually worry about you. Um, and uh, after the election, you'll get some mental health calls, I promise. But, um, you know, it's a... It, yeah, it's a a really, really um powerful thing for leaders to be able to communicate directly with their with their constituents because, you know, that, that filter, um, as we know, just the way the politics is trending across the world and, and the way the media is needing to trend just to just to stay relevant, um, they're looking for conflict, they're looking for things or they're driving their own agendas and you know, being able to have a direct conversation with people is um is the number one thing and, and that's why um you know whether it's the media or you know you're talking at a press conference or you're using your social media or you're on someone's doorstep you know having that direct conversation with somebody and not having not having someone else's opinion put through the middle of it is is what we need to do to survive because at the end of the day um you know uh, progressive politics is is built off complex thought and complex policy and and, and, and a structured way to the while we do what we do from a value space. You know, we can't just come up with a one-liner and shoot from the hip and, and win all the time. I mean, we can do that sometimes, but we, we, we're we not the party of one-liners and we're not the movement of one-liners. So it's about having that right value space and it's about having those longer conversations with people and being able to explain the why or or as you more eloquently put it, Steve, in the the, um, you know, the story of uh, self, the story of us and the story now, you know, that is... You know that's got to be the basis of how you're having your conversations. Whether it's whether it's whether you're creating a TV ad or a TV campaign, whether you're um, whether you're giving a forty-minute speech, a thirteen-second, stu- 13, um three minutes dumb speech, you're you're out in the door. So like there, there's just you need to be able to have that time to explain yourself and, and make people understand how you're making decision. Because people understand how you make decisions decision, they're going to trust that you're going to make the right ones continually.
0: In 2014, uh, you yourself, when you were the uh, party secretary and also Michael Gunner, I don't even think he was opposition leader then at that point, came down to Victoria to witness the organising efforts that uh, that we were undertaking here in Victoria and sort of with the Community Action Network. Two years later, the Labor campaign uh, in the Territory lay the foundations. I think you often referred to it as Rio. Uh, Rio. <laughs> um, <laughs> of field organising as a part of your broader campaign strategy, obviously, you know, mobilising volunteers and supporters to go and knock on doors, make calls uh, across uh, across the territory. In fact, one of my highlights was when, on, I think it was on the Thursday night before election day. No, not that highlight. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> one, um, I do have that in my notes that I was wondering if I was going to talk about. It. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Um, the, uh, the Thursday night before election day, we had a phone bank uh, and Gunner was going to come down at the end and sort of thank everyone and just say a few words and have a couple of beers and some party pies and stuff. Yeah. The phone bank was so goddamn busy, everyone couldn't fit into the phone bank, but because the weather's so <laughs> so lovely in in August in the Territory that everyone was sort of sitting out on the grass out the front of the campaign office um, on their laptops, on their mobiles, yeah. making calls as the sun goes down. I was just like, going, this is, you know, you can't you can't write this into a bloody TV script. This is fantastic, um, and the energy and the the enthusiasm amongst those volunteers that night was just if you could bottle it, uh, you would you would yeah. take over the world. Um, in twenty twenty, what's how how's the field operation looking uh, as we're a, a week out from uh, election day?
1: Yeah, well, um, um, well, start from the start here. Um, yeah, I always... I did get a chance to come down and, and see the, uh, the field operations that uh, you guys had set up for Victoria in 2014 and and um, I thought we worked hard, you know, I thought we worked really hard, I thought we did door knocking, I thought we did that stuff, you know. Um, and uh, and I walked into, and I just wanted to tell people about the powerful experience that I found there and it's, it's the one that stuck with me and it sort of, it was the one that... Um, uh, lit the fire um, for my passion for um, community action networks and this grassroots organising the way that it's done, and um, and and also the eternal flame that I hold for you, Stephen. But um, <laughs> the um, um, uh, I was I was shuffled off into a, a phone bank in Paran. Am I saying that right, Peran? Yep. Paran, Yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, I looked in and. Um, nobody in that place knew that I was a you know a branch secretary from somewhere else they just thought I was just um, just the some handsome guy rocking out at their office and um, so I you know walked in and I was um, you know everyone was really lovely and polite and happy and um, and I was got to meet a couple of people and I, I met the organizer but the organizer was busy so some one of the other like the lead, I can't remember what you call them now, but like the, the phone bank leaders or one of those guys took me aside to the side and sat me down and just asked me a few questions about me and um, and uh, it just really made me feel like I was the most welcome person in the world. I said to him, I said, like, how long have you been in the party? He goes, oh, I'm not in the party. And um, I said, like, oh, okay. <laughs> I said, how long have you been involved with this sort of stuff? He like, said, oh, March. You know, this is this is October or September or something. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Okay. That's amazing. Um, and then he sort of talked about everybody else and everyone else had a really similar story. And for me, um, you know, politics in the Northern Territory for a long time had been about, you know, 30 or 40 really hard working people that worked really hard on every seat at every election and, and that was we were maxed out and burned out and all that sort of other stuff. Um, I'd go through three pairs of shoes in an election cycle by letterboxing um, and uh, and all that stuff. And, and I walk into this place where, you know, there was... People that had never been involved in the party or the movement before that were, you know, given up their Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, and 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 they were making calls to people that, um, you know, that we didn't know we were going to vote for the party, and um, and it was just uh, uh, the same sort of feeling you had with that last flameout with us. I was like, I need to, I need to get some of this electricity and put it in the bottle, lightning, put it in the bottle. Like, um, this is this is absolutely incredible. Um, the 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 nature of the place where everyone was supportive and looking after each other, um, the and what that was able to do was help alleviate everyone's individual social anxieties. You know, before you jump on and make a call, like, I I hate phone calls and doing like I get so much anxiety before I do it. You know, I build myself up. Um, but it wasn't just that; it was the it was the uh, machinery like nature of the um, of the support that goes goes behind making you know that even one phone call. It's the it's the training of the lead lead phone banker to help other people train i got you know i got run through conversations before i was allowed to jump on the phones just to make sure i had a little bit out of the way um it was the it was the um resource scripts that you know help give you pivot points and um and help you find your own values and talk through those scripts it was the fact that it was the fact that um i got to see how those people were trained and the next people that we were trained and and we we often um and i've campaigned all around the country in different things and 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 what I'll say about that, that my uh, what i like to call the Victorian experience, which is completely different to everywhere else. It was the um, almost uh, manic um, preparation methods that went into just um, being able to make sure the right things were being said to the right people, and 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 not in um, not necessarily in an aggressive way, but the accountability that was built into that too. Um, and making sure that people were doing the work that say they'll be doing, um, making sure that people understood the value of the work that they were doing. I think that's another thing we often forget um, is that, you know, we get someone to say, you know, come out in the door, do some door knocking or whatever, and they sort of scratch around, they might hold a folder, they don't actually talk to anybody, they leave. You know, mm. um, you know they sort of sit there and go, well, why was I even here? What did I actually do? Whereas, you know, I walked into that place and they said, mate, tonight you're going to make 40 calls and... Um, and we think that, you know, every one of those calls that you make, that you're going to be able to help switch and change a voter. And if you change five voters for the night and everyone in this room changes five voters tonight, that's 50 voters, and we do that another 10 times, then we've changed 500 voters and that could be the difference this election. And and what, what sometimes gets lost is an individual um, volunteer, but, you know, I'm sure that the people listening are all in some form of or volunteers, or and they're going to come up the ladder in terms of the way that we do our business. You need to understand that um, these people, you know, everyone wants to know why what they're doing is contributing to the movement in a significant way. Um, and and the big thing that you're helping people do for the first time is is making them understand that you know labor values and progressive values are actually values that are actually entwined in almost every australian in some way shape or form you've just got to find the ones that do correlate and and link up you know everyone wants to look after their family everyone wants to make sure the kids get a right education everyone wants to make sure that you know they've got opportunities in life they can better themselves and better the people around them um we and i think what covid has taught us about um about you know us as a society is the fact that you know when it we, we do really well when we look after each other, and we all play by the rules, and 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 we invest in those things. And when we, you know, and where we've struggled the most is in the sectors we've cut back the most. And mm. um and it's a really empowering, uh, really empowering thing when you think about it. But sort of getting a bit, uh, drifting a little bit there. But getting back to you know what what that has meant for the Northern Territory and the way that we campaign mm. is we we were we were pretty excited, and I jumped back off, or I jumped um i just jumped off a tram i think and i, I rung uh, ryan Neve, who's um who has also come down and done some things he 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 joined uh, a pretty significant um dvc effort in michigan oh, no minnesota in i think 2014 as well i think the midterms up there and so he was he was he was chomping in the bit for one direction i was chomping in the other direction and we um um and uh and then uh, we got uh, anna involved and we talked to anna about this direct voter contact program and anna was like I don't know what that means and um and uh, uh but she took to it like a duck to water um and Anna is one of those people that really proves the rule that a lot of people you know come for the campaign but they stay for the organizer and um and Anna is just uh um uh just one of those people that you can you can build an entire system around because um she has uh the ability the insight and the um uh, just the right temperament to be able to make sure everyone's um, feel unhappy and got what they need to do to do their jobs, um, but at the same time, um, uh, you know, I, I don't like putting a wrong foot around her because uh, I, I really kept keep in mind myself.
0: She's a true organizer. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> how are you guys? So how are you guys looking in 2020 in terms of the field effort? And then I want to ask you a couple of questions about um, about uh, your advertising uh, strategy, uh, and then we might wrap up with some uh, predictions. But uh, just the field effort in uh, 2020, how's it looking?
1: Uh, look I've got um I've got the uh last um six weeks numbers for us I know the the numbers are around 100,000 contacts over the last 12 months or something like that so uh, oh, when, okay. I mean want people elsewhere to know that that 100,000 contacts is the entire electorate yeah so um like the entire electorate like all, all of it. Yep. <laughs> um so in the last six weeks we've done 22,328 um, phones and we've done 34,230 doors That's so nice. um, Yeah, Uh, we, uh, uh, after coming back from Victoria and and a few of us deciding that this direct voter contact program was the way to go, um, we really wanted to um, change the way that we, the basis of how we campaigned up here. Um, And that meant um, breaking a lot of old um, bad habits. And some of that was easier to do and some of it was harder to do. Um, And people that are trying to introduce these programs and, and push these through. Uh, different branches of the party across the place—you're you, going to find these barriers no matter where you go. And there's—and all of it is—it's just people that've been doing certain things in a certain way for a long period of time and and struggle to adjust. And partly because um, that's been a proven system to them, and they know that how it is and that the way it's always worked. Um, and partly not understanding value of the new way you do something. Um, but uh, any young activist or, um, or even young activist that's listening, I think one thing you need to take away with yourself is. If you're not getting any better um, at something, then you're probably getting worse. Mm. You know, the, the world is moving on around you. How you're evolving and how you're staying ahead of the game. Um, and so, for me, you know, the days of spending half your media budget on a print campaign in in a in a newspaper or um, or or spending three quarters of your budget on 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 paid media in general um you know th- those days on that's the only way to get your message out had to be had to be over um we we went from in 2012 and 2008 and all the mid 20 elections you know running a campaign it was basically a, a direct mail campaign that was accented by lots of other things and you know when you're paying 40 cents a letter that was probably a bit easier doable now that you're paying a, a dollar 10 just to post something out in a regular post if you're not getting ums um you know that significant portions of your campaign budget that are chewed up by one or two mailouts, and and um, and so we, you know we we took the modern science and the modern data on what persuades votes, and we know that um, we know that uh, an unaddressed piece of mail shifts probably well, I think it's one in a thousand voters, um, and we know that and a, a well targeted door knock will shift you know twenty seven out of hundred, which is probably about three in ten. So if I can give someone a two hour shift um somewhere and they can knock on 40 doors and get me 10 conversations and that probably shifts me three votes whereas if i give them two hours worth of letterboxing they will probably get through about 500 so they'll shift 0.5 a vote if i know i know where i want to be and you know, if i've only got 40 hours from that person over the lifetime of the campaign i'd rather they go click me you know 60 votes than um then um, five, five or eight by then. sorry my math isn't my strong um but uh um but so it was a real it was a real change of behaviour and getting people to understand that this is why we're doing it. This is why we're pointing in another direction now, and this is why this particular part is so important. And um, uh, and as I say, the proof of the pudding is in the air. Uh and we uh, we definitely um, and we definitely saw some fruit come out of it the last election, uh, and we're uh, we're hoping that we're going to get some and some good results this time around as well, because uh, the one thing that our no I matter mean, what has happened, whether it be COVID or pre-COVID or all around, um, we've got we've got a bunch of really dedicated parliamentarians and candidates that that um, know that looking after people and talking to people one on one is the is the um, is the best way to do it. So uh, they have been absolutely doing it.
0: How have you overcome some of the logistical challenges in trying to communicate the campaign messages to electors that are in? Uh, in those remote areas that probably don't have access to more traditional uh, media platforms?
1: Yeah. So um, um, remote areas are difficult to campaign in, in definitely what we class as a traditional sense, either urban or probably even what um, southern bush would look like. And um, you still... Uh, there's low take-up rates of commercial television. There's um, low take-up rates of landlines and things like that. Um, mobile phones—it's um, uh, quite a lot. Quite often, what most people have uh, prepaid plans that sort of, uh, they'll just buy a new phone every time they want one, um, as opposed to um, as opposed to having that number for you know two or three years. So there's there's challenges in um, in having access to the right data to be able to communicate with people. But one thing we do know is. Um, you know, you might change your phone but you never change your Facebook account and you never change those social accounts. So um, we've we've really made sure that we've, um, in part of our creative production of this election, is make sure that we've given our guys as much um, material and assets as we can to um, to be able to, uh, to talk to their people, to how do they tell their story, how do they tell their local story, how do they tell why they're relevant to those people out there now, um, and talking to people um You know, in their geographical location, it's not just you know, dear people. I am good. You know, like how do we how we really make sure that those um, messages are hitting the right people in the right ways? And um, and so you know, uh, Facebook's definitely been a a, you know a really great tool and opportunity for us to um, be able to communicate and talk to people and you know, and simple things like you know, do you know that you're going to be voting in a couple of days? Do you know that the or the mobile poll will be coming through? Or um, you know these. There's lots of, lots of things that
0: we're doing to actually just get out and have those conversations where we can. Turning to uh, election night, um, any of uh, our listeners out there that will be uh, listening to ABC, listening or watching to ABC TV or Sky, whoever's going to cover it outside of the territory, the election coverage itself, um, some of the seats that we want to take a look at to where government's won and lost essentially, what, uh, what are the seats that that you're uh, going to be keeping an eye on as the, as
1: the results come in? Yeah, well, um, I'll actually be counting pre-poll um, as the results are coming in. But um, but uh, um, one of the big things about this election is we predict that 80% of voters are going to have voted before Election Day. So um, that's really significant. So I um, know um, uh, it's not quite the question you asked. It's, it's probably the answer you wanted. Um, but um, um, so that's going to be really significant for us. Um, uh, but in terms of seats to watch, Palmerston's an interesting area for us, so um, we've we've held two seats out there at two different elections. Um, we are trying to hold two seats out there um, in this coming election. I think that we've got um, we've got outstanding people doing work out there at the moment um, in Tony Severs, Eva Lawler, and definitely in our candidates um, Mark Turner and um, Tristan um, uh, Tristan Sine. They're doing absolutely fantastic work out there at the moment and um, they are leaving no door unknocked, as we say. Um, and uh, uh, you couldn't ask for much more out of a, a, a group of people that are um, really putting themselves out there. And, and, you know, if people only take one thing away from what, all the work you do in elections, go, you know, that person works hard for me, you know, that's a that's a really big win, you know, because you're not always going to agree on lots of stuff. But if people, people you know, know that, you're generally actually going to be out there working hard and not just using this as a pit stop to be able to uh, get in the gravy train of Parliament House. Then, um, and I think people will respond to that. So Palmerston, uh, so the seats there are dry uh, Blaine, and Blaine's also held by Chief Minister uh, or former Chief Minister Terry Mills, uh, and he's the head of the Territory Alliance. Um, Palmerston, Blaine, and... Eh, not past, uh, Brendan, Blaine, Drysdale and um, Spillett are the, are the four in that particular cluster that will be interesting to watch. Um, uh, Catherine is an interesting one to watch. So we um, picked up Catherine for the first time in 2016. Um, our member retired um, mid-term. Um, well, and now she wasn't going to be running for par, uh, Sandra Nelson, who... Uh, um, uh, we'll always go down as a Labor hero for winning Catherine for Labor for the first time, um, and, but she's um, she stood down. Uh, Labor candidate Kate Gainley is um, uh, um, only quite recent under the hustings, which has been unfortunate. I think with a bit more time um, um, would have been really good for her. But in saying that, I think it's a it's a genuine um, three horse race in Catherine between um, the CLP, TIP, and and. Um, uh, and Kate, uh, I think that Katie's going to um, uh, give Catherine a real straight for it, uh, run for its money. Um, uh, so that'll be interesting to watch. Um, what's going to be interesting to watch there, especially, is what happens with the TAP and um, CLP primary votes. So at this stage, we don't actually really know who's going to finish second and third uh, in that race, um, and then what the preference distribution is going to be, um, and that's going to that's going to cause um, that'll be where it spills out. So we know that CLP and TAP have got a bit of bad blood between them in different places, but they've got good relationships in other places. So it's just about um, where... It's about who is voting for Territory Alliance in that particular place. Are they disaffected Labor voters or are they disaffected CLP voters? You know, what what is that? What is the vote that goes onto um it? Um, so I think that's going to be a yeah, really interesting one to watch, Catherine. Uh, as we move down the track... Um, or maybe not down the track, maybe up and, up to the northeast. Um, in 2016, we lost the former seat of newboy um, and that has been replaced by um, the seat of Monca. Um And uh, it's basically the same place, it just has a, um, a much better name. Um, and uh, Lynn Walker is really contesting that after losing it to um, Mark um, uh It's going to be a really interesting battle out there in terms of um, whether uh, Lynn was able to regain any of the support some of the communities that uh, we went to Labor at the last election. So, uh, and and whether um, we can maximise turnout in um, some of the places where we probably didn't do uh, good enough get out the vote job in 2016. So that's that'll be one to watch. Daly as well, you know, shaping to be quite an interesting electorate. Um, who are, you know they're actually at the polls right now, so they're f- five days into voting. Um there's um um uh Regime McCarthy, who's the Territory Alliance candidate, has got some good connections through there. Uh, Anthony Venus, who's the recontesting Labor candidate, um, has um uh um been teaching and working out in Wodair, which is one of the largest uh, larger Indigenous communities for a little while now, um, and CLP obviously held the seat, but have um, uh, with re- retiring CLP member Gary Higgins, uh, we only lost that seat by about 130 votes last time, so it's not it's not out of reach uh, by any stretch. So again, that's going to be a genuine um, uh, three corner contest. So. Um, um, uh, there'll be another one that's interesting to watch. Again, it's who falls second and third is going to determine where those preferences go. Uh, the other thing to think about preferences in the Northern Territory, um, um, uh, and I'm be slightly blame for this and the reason that happened in the first place, but uh, uh, due to the escalation of um, uh, voting booth antics with the appearance of moving screens and and sees a list with signs and things like that. The Northern Territory government banned uh, campaigning within 100 metres of polling booth. Um, that was the CLP government, and that's sort of remained in place. So being able to hand someone how to vote card as they walk through the door is, is something that's dramatically reduced. So, you know, whether preference flows coming out of that banning um, hold up the same way as the party would like is probably going to dissipate as well. So what we're going to see is probably a um, more of a truer voter preference um, of those preference flows so you're not you can't sort of just go well that's on the card so they'll get that you know it's, it's a it's, it's actually um going to be a bit different um uh, another one interesting one to watch is going to be um uh the seat of brightling in Alice Springs um um that was held by a former uh chief minister Adam Giles prior to the last election um he uh didn't think things were going very well for himself on uh, polling day last time and uh, packed up at about 2.30 in the afternoon <laughs> from a polling room, uh, whereas uh, the Honourable Minister, Daya Wakefield, didn't pack up and became the Honourable Minister, Daya Wakefield. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think she got up by 31 votes or something off the top of my head the license all of that. So um, never give up and never give in, guys. Um, um, in, so, again, Alice Springs is a place where we... Um, Uh, haven't been able to communicate our values with the electorate as effectively as you want over a long period of time Um, and uh, and it's about finding how well we've been able to do that over the last couple of years but uh, um, uh, Dale's an absolute superstar of a human being and um, if anyone Um, and has been absolutely putting in the work. So we just hope that she gets the result that she deserves.
0: Dale's victory and Sandra Nelson's victory on election night was those, if I can use some sort of sporting parlance, you know when your team's just winning so well and all of a sudden you're just kicking goals from...
1: I'll go for the crows. I don't know about winning so well anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know that. But, you know, at some point where you're looking back on election night and go, can you believe that, you know, so-and-so did, you know, like that was kind of like like Dale Wakefield got up, like, you know, the, yeah. the dickhead went home at 2.30 in the afternoon, that kind of stuff. It was just the stuff of Labor dreams um, that yeah. the, the, and yeah. I really hope that Dale Wakefield, Dale Wakefield uh, gets back up again uh, in a week's time. The other one I want you to just give us a bit of a rundown on is uh, trying to regain the seat of Fong Lim after Jeff Collins has Left the Labour Party, now running as a Territory Alliance. Um, how are we feeling uh, about re uh, winning re- winning back that seat?
1: Um, look, uh, I, the hero in this story is going to be a guy called Mark Monahan, who is our candidate there. Um, Mark, um, uh, Mark, put up his hand, Mark moved to the church about twenty odd years ago. Um went to Tiwi, was a teacher and principal up there, then we moved out Arnhem and was a teacher there, and he's come back in and stopped being a teacher and you now he's involved in business and he's just he's just one of these people with a with a CV, um that's genuine. That um that uh is you know is uh, really, really good. Um uh and he uh um you know, you do not Not every candidate signs up to the program straight away, but uh, we told Mark that if you're not door knocking, you're not doing anything worth doing um, pretty early on, and, um, and he has uh, taken a lot of that to a duct of water. So, um, uh, we're getting, I mean, it's going to be difficult. Um, there's some naturally highly conservative areas in that seat, um, just through um, marinas and things like that, and some pretty nice places. Um, um, but there's also a lot of... Um, uh, sort of old school Labour Heartland suburban area in there too. And um, um, so it should be good. Um, look, uh, Jeff um, uh, would be fair to say never really caught on to the uh, direct voter and contact program. Um, so <laughs> that's been kind.
0: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's been kind. I feel like it's okay. We can kind of not I want to trash on anyone and on the podcast, but I mean, <laughs> like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, Jeff. Um, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> you know. I, I, it, it's sad. I had a relationship with Jeff, and um, and you know, I, I like the guy, and he, he just um, he went the other way, um, um, unfortunately. And um, uh, but you know, he's. Um, but I wouldn't, wouldn't say that DVC was his strong point and um, and I'm not sure why it's going to start being it now. Mm. Okay.
0: Well, fingers crossed we pick up that one as well. Um, yeah. Uh, Ken Rowe, predictions before we go. How are you feeling?
1: Um, predictions. This is always a bit dangerous. Um, predictions. Um, I think...
0: Well, but before you do that, while you gather your thoughts and say this is always a bit dangerous... Um, let me tell you that I did, when I was over in the United States in 2016, a couple of months after the um, Landslide election that you have saw in the Northern Territory, I sat on the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York and did an interview with ABC Radio uh, Australia, with a journalist who was um, flown up from Washington, DC. Uh, and she asked me that question towards the end, prediction, Stephen, how do you think uh, Hillary Clinton's going to go against Donald Trump? And I said, ah. shit it in absolutely like if Donald Trump gets elected you know come on like this is what are we doing no no chance no chance whatsoever so I'm on the record of being absolutely wrong so it's okay with that knowledge
1: (laughs) Kent Rowe predictions Um. Oh, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this with um, for everyone listening at home that I am the absolute eternal optimist, by the way. So I absolutely eternal optimist. So um, uh, we're going to win 35 seats. They're going to owe us 10 at the next election. That's <laughs> how I'm going. Very good. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> now nice. nah, look, um, uh, I think Labor's going to hold a majority. Um, uh, the size of that majority will be. Um, um, uh, what's in debate uh we we would be ahead in a lot of key races that could have us um, quite high up the board um you, know, you never want to uh, never want to jinx these things but um you know there's 10 days to go um but there's a lot of votes in the bank already and um, and i'm confident that one part of the team that's going to be doing um hard work right up to 6 p.m on uh, august the 22nd
0: excellent well uh, Kent. One, we appreciate your time uh, to speak to us today, given that you actually are working on the campaign. Uh, yeah. So, thank you for that. Uh, two, we'll be watching. Time off the door, Stephen. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, it's a bit hot right now. I get that, but I want you back out there in an hour, all right? Uh, <laughs> lovely dust door knocking in in uh, in, the yeah. in Northern Territory is beautiful. Um, yeah. But we'll be watching on uh, on Saturday, next Saturday night, not this Saturday night, next Saturday night, um, and hoping yeah. that uh, you guys, you and Michael and uh, the team, can bring home another victory and continue to do good things for the people of the Northern Territory into the next
1: four years. Best of luck. Cheers, yes, Stephen. Wonderful. Thanks for, thanks for having me on.